In this episode, we interview Brian Halligan, the co-founder and CEO of HubSpot. For whoever doesn't know, HubSpot is an inbound marketing company that's raised more than $100 million in funding, gone public, and brought in $375 million in total revenue in 2017 alone. He's also the co-author of two books and a senior lecturer at MIT. Brian is a real-life superhero. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Real Life Superpowers Great. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm here with my co-host, Renan Manipaz. Hey, Brian. Pleasure. How are you doing, guys? Great. How are you doing, Brian? What are we interrupting you in the middle of? We're just having a long conversation about pricing and packaging, actually. A lot of fun. Oh, cool. What are you packaging? Oh, our software. How do we price it and how do we package it? We have some new products coming out that are really compelling. How do we bundle it and how do we package it in a way that it's easy to buy and uh, we can grow along with our customers? It's a uh, was the meeting I just came out of. Oh, that's super interesting. And it's actually one of the things that uh, I think uh, one could argue that you're uh, best at, seeing as you grew HubSpot from zero to where it is today. Uh, I'm not sure we're that good at, I'm, not, I'm actually not sure we're that good at pricing and packaging. Uh, I think we build a good product and the value props there and it delivers a lot of value, but uh, I would give us a C on our, or the way we price it. I think we can do it in a much smarter way. Ah, I see. Okay, and uh, yeah. how would you say that it actually brought HubSpot to where it is today? It's an, it's an entire movement. Uh, yeah, I think there's a couple things that we did right. Um, one of which was uh, we had a good idea, and the idea was the, time, the, the timing of the idea was pretty good. Uh, the basic idea was we thought that humans were sick and tired of being marketed to and Super clever at blocking it out with ad blocker and spam protection and you know, just nearly impossible to reach humans. And we said, well, let's help people market in a new way to match the way they market with the way people shop and buy. How do you get found in Google and blogs and social media and really flip it on its head? It turned out that was a decent idea. And it turns out the timing on that idea wasn't too early where we wandered through the desert for too long or too late where we had a bunch of competitors. I think we got pretty lucky on the timing. But Brian, like, was that your dream as a student? Did you just go say, oh, we're sick of the people getting marketed? Like, were you marketed at that age? Uh, it was in B school, and there were two kind of two things that, that led us to the idea. Uh, one of the things was mine. I was, I was working, spending some time in a venture capital firm as an entrepreneur in residence, and I was working with founders and CEOs, and I just saw how much the money they were spending on buying lists and spamming people and buying lists and cold calling people, doing crappy advertising, doing the big trade show, and just how futile it seemed to be, uh, and kind of being frustrated with how much money they were wasting on traditional marketing techniques. And at the same time, my co-founder blogged his way through business school. We went to beat school together, and his blog was doing extremely well in Google Organic and doing really well and dig in Reddit and early social media sites. And it's sort of the juxtaposition of those, those things, like the old marketing's not working, and there's a new way people are seem to be living and working and shopping and learning, and that's through the blogosphere and social media and Google. 
And so it's sort of the juxtaposition of those ideas that we said, well, it's a new way to do this called inbound. And boy, the world needs a new type of software platform to pull this off. We call that HubSpot. And how would you define inbound marketing? I know it's a difficult question, uh, but I think many people aren't exactly sure what that means. Yeah, I, it, it's easier to, to, to describe it in, in the inverse of what, what it's not. Outbound is, is, is interrupted, more interrupted marketing when you're, you're cold calling a human, when you're uh, sending unsolicited emails to somebody, when you're sending a crappy ad to somebody, when somebody interrupts you on the sidewalk. Those are all kind of outboundy things. Inboundy things are more gentle ways of marketing that you're pulling people in. Like how do you create a great piece of content? So it's discoverable inside of Google. How do you create a great piece of content so it's discoverable, discoverable inside of Instagram or Facebook or something like that? How do you get people to subscribe to your site? How do you use a freemium model to give something away that pulls people in? It's the newer, lighter touch model. And when I look at what's happening in the economy, so much of what's interesting that's happening of the companies that are exploding these days, it's not so much that they're building kind of a new type of product or technology. Oftentimes, the disruptors, the companies that are really taking off, have a new type of business model that's inbound that really matches the way people want to buy today. But it's less and less, I think, about what you're selling and more and more about uh, about how you're selling it. It's, it's, a, it's a how game, not a what game now. I actually have a funny story about that with respect to HubSpot, because actually the way that I started using HubSpot uh, as an agency is I started taking courses on the HubSpot Academy because I had challenges in my day-to-day -day job. And I was taking courses and I was really learning a lot. And I remember one day I called up my business partner and I said, listen, this is incredible. I'm learning so much and I have no idea what these guys are selling. I can't find any, any info about that anywhere. Uh, but I just, I want to hear what they're selling because something huge is happening here. And more or less along that time, uh, a salesperson from HubSpot called me and clearly I was all ears just to hear what uh, you have to offer. So I think that's really incredible and exactly, I think that's exactly what you were trying to do and what you're preaching. Yeah, that's kind of it. We, give, we started by giving away uh, content uh, in blog articles and eBooks and things like that. And then we saw let's give away uh, basically little courses, uh, academy courses that people can get certified in. And now we give away, you know, a ton of software. We have a lot more free software users than we have paid software users. So it's, it's sort of the way of the world is how do you get people in today? I think people are very dubious of vendors these days. And if you give them something for free and add some value, that they will be very willing and happy to pay for it. Uh, whether that's Spotify or Gmail, you name the service you're using in your consumer life, almost everything is, is premium these days. And the internet makes that happen. Yeah, exactly, because you have access to everything. And then instead of being interrupted, if you get an experience where you're actually uh, learning something and getting value out of a company, you're much more open to now uh, listening to what they have to offer you uh, and what they have to sell. Sure, I'm with you, I'm with you. So Brian, you're one of the most respected CEOs in the United States. You're top 10 in the highest generated CEO in Glassdoor and also uh, named in Ernest and Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2011. Uh, so like, what, how do you do it? Like, what's your superpower? What distinguishes you right now from anybody else? I think there's maybe two things that, that I do that are a little unusual. One is I've got kind of a healthy disrespect for conventional wisdom, which can be very irritating at times. But, uh, yeah, we came up with the value prop for HubSpot, and we've extended the value prop for HubSpot in ways that many people advise us not to do. 
And if everyone's got the same idea, you know, it's going to be a very crowded world. And so we oftentimes went the opposite way of conventional wisdom, whether that's the way we hired people or our value prop or whatever it would be. We weren't afraid to rethink something from scratch and to think a little bit about, you know, what's the future going to look like two, three years from now and try to think about how we pull the future forward a little bit. I think that's a superpower, not afraid to buck, uh, buck conventional wisdom. And that was sort of the value prop at the beginning. I think the, the thing that served me well over time is I'm kind of a learn it all. I really like to learn. Um, I don't like to take things necessarily at face value. I like to unpack them and learn them. I like getting feedback, feedback to kind of the, the breakfast of champions. And I'm always trying to get better personally. I'm trying to be a better manager and leader for HubSpot. I'm trying to improve our products. I'm trying to improve everything. It's constantly pushing and learning. And I'm never, I'm never satisfied. And uh, I don't have a know-it-all mentality. I feel like it can learn a lot, for example, for someone who just, just joined HubSpot, who has kind of a beginner's mind. I can pick, uh, pick a lot of learnings out of almost anything or anywhere. Just constantly trying to learn from our customers and our partners and our employees and get better. I just have a, a real learner's mindset. Yeah, you started off the conversation with not being satisfied. So you like telling your packaging is C. So, you, you know, you're very honest with that. Like, uh, I appreciate that. Are you as honest with your employees as well? I'd like to use the word transparent. Uh, I think if you're transparent with your employees and tell them what's really going on, good and bad, it's, it's never always good. They'll end up trusting you and that trust you build is very, very useful. Uh, and so I've always been super transparent and we did something very unusual that really bucked conventional wisdom when we went public, uh, that transparency we had at HubSpot was, was valuable. Uh, we feel like when we give our employees all the same information we have, they're better armed to make decisions, better armed to give us feedback and they're just more powerful. The insights come from everywhere. But when you go public, uh, it's supposed to change that, that only four or five of your top executives are supposed to have all of the information. Uh, and then your employees are really limited in what they can know. And that's for good reason. People need you know, it's to discourage kind of insider trading and things like that. But we said, so, well, we want everyone to continue knowing everything. And so what typically happens is those top four or five executives can only trade the stock in certain periods of time. And there's big giant blackout periods when they can't sell and they're called insiders. And I think we were the first company to ever do this, but we basically said every darn employee in the company, whether you're you're the receptionist or you're me, we're gonna establish you as an insider. And the downside of that is everyone's got these blackout periods inside of HubSpot. So you can only trade the stock in certain windows of time. But the upside of that is everybody knows everything that's going on at all times. It's very well informed. It feels part of the journey. It has a very transparent experience with us. That transparency served us very, very well. But how do you execute such transparency? Because there's thousands of employees and HubSpot is a worldwide uh, enterprise. Uh, we do a couple things. Um, we, we probably have the world's most active wiki. Uh, <laughs> like nothing, it, it didn't happen unless it happened on the wiki. And my co-founder and I are, are very frequent posters to the wiki on what's going on in our heads and what are issues going on inside the company. And we debate stuff on the wiki and the wiki encourages a lack of hierarchy. So some frontline employee can say, Hey, Brian, I think that's BS. And, and we don't care. We want, we want the idea. We don't think we all have all the best ideas. We often, oftentimes that best idea comes to frontline employees. The wiki's super active. 
We have company meetings that are pretty good. We spend a lot of energy thinking about the company meetings, preparing for them and executing on them. We have customers on them. We have AMAs, Ask Me Anything. So once a month or so, Darmesh or I will do an AMA with all the employees where they can just show up by video or, or live and ask us anything. And so we're transparent. Any one of our management team meetings, one member of the management team is responsible for taking notes and posting that to the wiki. Same thing with the board meetings. Pretty much one person is responsible for taking notes in the board meetings. You post those in the wiki. So if you're interested in digging in and knowing a lot, it's very easy to do. Not all of our employees are like that. Some of the employees are like, hey, I, I trust you guys. I don't have to read all the management team notes on the wiki. But there's a decent percentage of the employees who are right on top of it. And uh, they're very valuable employees when they're like that. That, that That's incredible, though. Like, two questions about that. First of all, was that from the beginning of your strategy? Uh, or or is it something that evolved? And how do you do that on a global level? Like, how many employees right now do you have in HubSpot? Like, how do you implement that? Uh, we have, I think we have 2,200, 2,300. I forget how many. And That's a lot of AMAs. Uh, no, no, no. I just did one two weeks ago. And I do an AMA, and it's in Cambridge. And it's done over Zoom, the video conferencing software. And people can ask questions via Slack during it. And so all that kind of stuff we do is global first. You know, we don't do it just for the United States. And I just, yeah, I do that stuff frequently. Same with the company meetings. So we use, we're aggressive users of video conferencing technology. The good news is that stuff has trended better over time and it's gotten better quality. And so it's gotten easier to be transparent. When it was really, when I was really early in my career in my 20s, I worked for this other software company. And they moved me to Asia, and I lived in Japan for a while, I lived in Hong Kong for a while. And man, there was about a 12-hour time difference between where I was and our headquarters, and I was on an absolute island. And the only way they could communicate with me was fax, and it was asynchronous. So this fax something, I'd respond to them the next day that fax back. There was no videos. There was telephone calls, but the time zones were brutal. Times have changed in a really positive way for companies that want to communicate broadly and transparently, it's a heck of a lot easier than it used to be. Did you have many obstacles uh, while experiencing this pretty rapid growth? How do you keep control of everything? <laughs> uh, I don't know if we keep control of it. Control wouldn't be the word I'd use. <laughs> uh, we've had plenty of obstacles. Like it looks, maybe from the outside, it looks like HubSpot's kind of straight up into the right, but it's it's a bumpy road up into the right. It's an up and down. It's a sine wave up into the right. And we have uh, times when we're just humming and times where we're struggling. And uh, it definitely goes up and down and up and down over time. And we have lots of problems and we do our best to solve our problems. I think one of the things that served us well is my personality of being a learn-it-all. Sort of analogous to that is I never like to make the same mistake twice. And I'm fine with making a mistake. I'm fine with one of my employees making mistakes. So long as we learn from it and don't do it over and over and over again. And we're quite good at that. But we have made many, many mistakes over the years. Uh, and we do our best just to, to, to document the mistake and look at data that might predict when that mistake might happen again and try to avoid it. And so it's kind of a learning culture and a, and a, a culture that tolerates mistakes but doesn't tolerate repeating them. I think that served us quite well. Yeah, like so in, in, two, in 2007 to 2010, like there was incredible growth. Like uh, what was the turning point there? Like what happened that it exploded? 
I mean, for HubSpot, we only started the company in 2006. I think HubSpot really started to take off, frankly, in my head around 2012, 2013. One of the things we did at HubSpot that everyone told us not to do was to be a very horizontal platform. And so we started with really blogging, social, and search back in 2006. So we did a lot. Like, we have a lot of search engine optimization competitors, blogging competitors, social media, marketing competitors, but we tried to do all three. And frankly, when you do all three, you have to be very thin at first, and then you build functionality and quality over time. And so I kind of think of the first five, six years of HubSpot, we were very thin and buggy because we we not only did blogging and social and search, but then we started doing marketing automation, email and landing pages and automation. And then we get into CRM and now we're into service. So uh, it took us a while to get to kind of table stakes that we had a high quality functioning, very valuable product and the word of mouth would spread. We always had good marketing. We always could sell. I think we were slower to have a product that really worked and scaled and delivered on the promise. And around 2012, I feel like we started, we were less sizzle, more state. And now we're a lot of state. And frankly, we're a little less sizzle. I don't think, I think our marketing is still great. But I, I feel like we're more of a product-like company today than a market and a marketing-like company. We invest a lot in our products and our service and our customers. One thing we've discovered over time is people used to just buy HubSpot based on our marketing. They'd read our blog and they'd see us the social search and it's right. like our mission and buy based on our marketing. And today that no one does that. But what they do is talk to all their friends that have bought HubSpot before. Uh, and hopefully the word of mouth is good. And so I think marketing's changed a lot where humans are, are distrustful, more and more distrustful. Certainly humans don't trust the government anymore. Certainly they don't trust the media. They don't trust social, they don't trust anything but their friends and colleagues. And so word of mouth today is, is far more important. So if you, if you look at HubSpot from the outside and see how we invest our money, it's really shifted from a sales and marketing driven budget to a product and customer driven budget. And that's, I think that's the way of the world these days is no matter what you're selling, uh, it's word of mouth. Real Life Superpowers doesn't do the whole sponsorship thing, but we do like to holler about awesome ideas and things that are useful. So great job, quality time app. No, I don't know if you know this, but I've been using Instagram about half an hour a day and I put a timer for 10 minutes a day. So 20, working out for you? 20 minutes accumulated of more time doing anything more efficient than going into Instagram. No offense, Instagram is great for me. So great job, guys. Um, Download it too then. Yeah, great idea. So do you remember a moment when you figured, okay, this is happening, we've reached a tipping point. I think we are truly onto something huge here. Uh, there's one point that was, there were a couple of financing points that were tipping, that were points that you could kind of step back and say, well, we're onto something. We, we did a, a round of financing that was led by Sequoia Capital and then Google invested and Salesforce.com invested. That was like, it was like if you're in the mafia and you became a made man in the mafia. That was the moment that it was like, okay, these guys are legit. We must, we can't be that big a chunks of all these guys you're investing in us. Uh, and 
uh, that helped the business. That gave us a tailwind. The IPO was kind of similar. You, you're just on the road. We did, you know, Dermesh and I are on the road with our other team members, and there's a lot of time at night and over the weekends when you're on the IPO road to really just reflect a little bit on your success. Yeah. I think recently is the, we give away our CRM, and that free CRM product has really resonated nicely in the pro, in the market, and it's starting to drive a lot of uh, successful customer adoption. So at different points, it hits you. We tend not to be, Dharmesh and I tend to be never quite satisfied. We're deeply paranoid about the competition or potential competition down the road. We feel like we have the opportunity to build a real anchor company that is a lot bigger than we have today that has a lot more impact on customers and partners and investors and employees. So for better or worse, we've always got this, you know, we're not there yet mentality. I think it serves us well, but it's probably not good for our mental condition. Yeah, what's the end game? Like you, if you're not satisfied and you're, you're talking about this in the future, like what's the end game for HubSpot? Where do you want to be? A lot of people say, you know, why are you still at HubSpot? Like startup journeys over is no fun anymore. To me, the whole point of starting a company is to get to something big and impactful and Financially, that's the personal, a personal financial uh, gain. Like we have plenty of that. That's not sort of the goal anymore. What we're starting to see those real impact, like 2,200 employees, a lot of them are buying homes and getting married and are financially stable and learning a lot. Uh, we have alumni that have left HubSpot that are starting companies that are really impacting their local economies. Our customers are growing and telling a story. Our partners, same thing. We have lots of partners that started and they just had two employees and now they, you know, they have 20 or they have 50 employees and they're growing. We're starting to have a real impact on Dublin, where we have a European headquarters and in Cambridge, we have our Boston headquarters. We think we're having, starting to have an impact on actual humans' lives and we think the potential for greater impact is very high. And so we want to be as impactful as we can. We want to build a company that are kids, like Darmesh's kid is, I think, seven now. My kid's 14. We want our kids to be bragging about HubSpot. We want HubSpot to be around when our kids are our age. We want it to be something we're super proud of. We feel like relative to our potential, it's still early. That's inspiring. Do you want your kids uh, to work at HubSpot? Yeah, I'm not sure I want that. Got it. And I want to revert back to what you were saying about mental conditions. So how do you deal with your stress? I, I do have stress. And my stress goes up and down. Do you have any daily habits, I, things that uh, keep you in focus, that keep you balanced? Yeah, yeah there's a couple of things I do. I, <laughs> it's going to sound really cheesy, but I have like in my notes section of my phone, it's going to sound weird, but my to-do list, the top of my to-do list says, I'm happy, I'm grateful. Uh, and so every day I look at that. It's sort of like affirmation, I guess. And I, I think, well, I'm lucky I have a great son. My my mother is healthy and happy. My my siblings are healthy and happy. I've got great friends. We've got a great company. Like when I start to get down and stressed, I try to take try to take a step back and look at the big picture and like, well, things can't be that bad. I do try to meditate a few times a week. That helps me to get into that mode of you know, get out of the weeds and get into the big picture. That's helpful for me. I certainly exercise, like lots of people probably do. And uh, I play guitar, which helps me a little bit. Um, I try to take a vacation. I'd say one thing that helps me a lot is I'm, I'm more introverted than people think. 
And so every Wednesday I work from home and I have no meetings, no calls, no nothing. Uh, I just think and work on projects and try to catch up on stuff. And that's my catch up day. So I don't have to spend the entire weekend working. I don't mind working on the weekends a little bit, but I don't want to spend the entire weekend working. And what happens, I think, to a lot of people is during the week from Monday to Friday, just they're completely booked. And then at night they're booked with dinner to the employees, investors, whatever. And the only time they can actually think and do high quality project-based work is on the weekend. And so that Wednesday helps me get the projects done, free up my weekend a little bit. And the Wednesday also helps me, I, I get to check out from humans. Like humans make me tired. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you a good alone thinker? You don't like, or are you like a, a people brainstormer? I'm a good alone thinker. Yeah, I was, I was never a good alone thinker. I always need feedback. Uh, yeah. Feedback was important for me for ideas. I'll try my alone thinking yeah. now. I'm good at the alone thinking. I meditate and I take naps and I think through stuff and I do a lot of reading and I collate a lot of stuff into a file and think about it. And then I'll write about it and I'll get feedback through the written document. But I, I need some alone time to bake if I have a big decision. Darmesh is the same. He needs a lot. He needs a lot more alone time than I do. He's more introverted than I am. Once in a while, we'll have a big idea together, but oftentimes it's, it's over email. We'll have a big idea. Yeah. And oftentimes my good ideas happen. This is going to sound weird, but when I'm waking up in the morning or I'm, I'm waking up out of a nap in that in-between space when my brain is really relaxed and not thinking about a particular problem and new connections are being made inside of my brain, it's like in the semi-dream state, a lot of good ideas for me happen in and out of a nap or waking up in the morning. So a lot of times I'll try to lie in bed in the morning and when there's nothing else on my mind and kind of let, let my mind kind of ramble and roam. It's almost like the more I'm thinking about a given problem, the less likely I am about to, to come up with a creative solution. Yeah, rather than sort of let the gates to the unconscious just open. I think a lot of people yeah. also mention uh, during a hot shower that happens as well, also because their brain is yeah. just slowing down and you can let other thoughts surface that aren't on your, just yeah. on your conscious mind. Yeah. Being. It doesn't happen to me in the shower problem, but it might happen to me in the shower, but I don't have a, a, like, a way to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> Just forget. You change too many phones. So like, we've been talking to really impressive entrepreneurs, and there's uh, something that, um, that we're um, intrigued about. So I'm talking now about the, um, your, your business partner. So it's a long-term relationship. Uh, how do you maintain that? Because uh, there's a lot of successful businesses that it's one of the biggest problems to maintain that process because it's sort of like a couple of relationship. So uh, what's your trick to keep the chemistry happening? Chemistry there is really good. Well, there was a couple of hacks we did early that helped. One hack we did is we decided how we'd make decisions and how we'd break ties. And the way it sort of works is there's a big decision. And by the way, as you get bigger, like all you do is just make decisions. And you oftentimes make unpopular decisions, but you're a professional decision maker at the end of the day. And so we get scientific about how to make decisions. Uh, and so the way we make decisions is if one people person feels really strongly about it, to so say, I'm going to lay on the track. If we both agree, obviously we do that. If we kind of disagree and one person feels strongly and they say, hey, I'm going to lie on the tracks in this decision, like we got a big hire we're working on right now, and I feel pretty good about the person, and I have a meeting with Darmesh, I have a feeling he might lie on the tracks against this person, and I have to respect that. Same with me. It's a lie on the tracks. That doesn't happen often, every couple, you know, maybe every couple of years, but if he's like, I feel so strongly about this, I'm lying on the tracks, 
I'm, I'm blocking it, I'm cool with that and vice versa. If we both are lying on the tracks and feel super strongly about it, then I get to break the tie and that almost never happens. Like we see the world in a very, very similar way. Uh, that has helped. I think upfront talking about, um, he didn't want to be a CEO and he wanted to be more in the, in the background, be a CTO and that's worked very well. Uh, for the both of us, uh, but largely we run it as a partnership. Almost every big decision I would run be run by him. It helps that I've got a great co-founder. He's a very very smart guy, smartest guy I've come across, uh, and, and exceptionally high integrity. Um, yeah, it helps to have chemistry when you've got a, a person who's really easy to deal with and very thoughtful, and you respect their opinion a lot. Uh, and so we we were a good match. He's got skills I don't have. I've got skills he doesn't have. And I think we both respect what we bring to the table. I think the number one cause of death for startups is founder conflict. I mm -hmm. see it a lot. Founders don't see the world in the same way. And, and uh, yeah, you've got hard decisions. And in, in, in most of the time, there's no right answer. You don't know what the right answer is. It's, it's You're guessing. You have as much data as you can get to make the decision. But in startup mode, there's usually just not a whole lot of data to make the decision. It's a gut feel. And uh, I think that's, that's a high cause of death for founders. We went to school together and went to business school together. And so we got to see each other in like in a classroom, which is a decent way to see someone. We got to work on some projects together and that helped a lot actually. Yeah. But the, I'm interested in your feedback here. Cause a lot of the entrepreneurs said something that sometimes the beginning, uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, usually they're single uh, they don't have a lot of responsibilities. And then when the company grows, things change in life, not in the business. So sometimes the the death of startups or or the complexity of having uh, that kind of relationship is not really from the business. It's because of the changes, because you evolve as a person, right? And I'm, I'm sure you, you napped less and you um, uh, meditated less when you were younger and you, you evolved into that. And suddenly Wednesdays, you took them off. So So what do you think about that? I suspect that's right. It hasn't happened with us. We've certainly evolved as humans, and we actually spend less time together personally outside of work. Yeah, but it's kind of weird. We're a little bit of business is business, and, and personal is personal, and we haven't let it overlap. There's been a couple times, like when he was having his child, like, boy, that was a busy time for him, and he couldn't do everything, but it's been pretty good. Uh, one thing that we also did at the beginning, I think, that's helped guide us is we went to business school together. We went both into business school rather late. And so we had both had some success prior to HubSpot. And we both agreed when we started the company that we'd swing for the fences, that this wouldn't be a small ball kind of game. And I think a lot of the tension happens with founders when one kind of wants a short-term success and the other is looking for something long-term and sustainable. Um, and that, that's a great way for incentives to get out of alignment. Those incentives were aligned early that we both were going to be patient and thinking about this as a multi-decade thing, not a multi-year thing and something that, you know, would count success in the millions of users, not the tens of users kind of game. I think that's helpful to, 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 to keep those incentives aligned. And that has to change as my son's gotten older, for example, uh, or, he's having a child that that's remained the same. The other thing that has to happen is we're both relatively young. We're both 50, like neither of us, you know, ready to retire, um, which presents some interesting dynamics when that would happen. So now it's so far so good. 
Good. That's that's you. You guys are lucky then. I think it's more than luck. I think you have like a some sort of mechanism, like you've described, where you actually know how to resolve uh, whenever conflict arises, and I think you're in sync uh, with your goals. Uh, and I think that's probably something to learn from and understand. To summarize the three things: one is make sure you know what your your partner's goals are, short or long, financial, like what do you want. Two, you have a mechanism to make decisions and. Three, up front early on, decide how you're going to split the equity, I think is important as well. Split the equity between people uh, that will join uh, yeah. the company as you grow. No. no, between you two or you three who start the company. Right, right. But that, that also becomes complex afterwards. Like it's an easy decision in the beginning, but then it, you know, it evolves in uh, who's more uh, major and minor. It has evolved a bit uh, for us. Neither of us are that motivated by money. And yeah, it hasn't been a big issue. The other thing that happens after you go public is there's like standard amounts that people make inside companies if they're CEOs and CTOs. So it hasn't been super contentious. And yeah, I'm probably the lowest paid public SaaS CEO out there. Uh, and he's probably the lowest paid SaaS CTO out there. We want to take our money and put it back into the company. And so that hasn't been a huge issue either. Right. By the way, your stock is doing amazingly for a long while. Like, uh, yeah, and how do you like? Is that because of the transparency or or global growth? How do you explain that? Uh, you'd have to ask our investors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, but I think a couple of things are going right. Like our value prop is kind of obvious, and how we help companies grow. Lots of companies have that problem. Uh, the product's pretty unique in the, in this part of the market. Uh, they they buy the vision. And the numbers look good. You know, we're growing in the high 30s percentage growth rate. We're profitable, and the bottom line's growing. Top line's growing very fast. The bottom line's growing, and they 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 see that there could be a real big company in the future that's uh, that's very valuable. Um, but it goes up and down. It goes up and down based on how we're doing and how our peers do and how the market's doing and all kinds of reasons it can go up and down. And and the question that most interests me is. As a real-life superhero, what scares you? Uh, first of all, I'm not a real-life superhero. For us, you are. For us, you are. It's subjective. Come on, you're called the Steve Jobs of marketing. No, no, I'm not really. I'm, there's only one Steve Jobs. Okay, I'm going to tell you something that very few people know, that I have been a lifelong, absolute, scared, shitless flyer. I am the, you don't want to sit next to me on the plane. I am, I am <laughs> very, very nervous flyer. And I will put down six beers on a flight to California from Boston. Uh, that is kind of a kryptonite, actually. It's been a, it's been a, it's a pain in the neck. It's a real pain in the neck for me. I can't rent the car when I arrive. I have to arrive at night. Like it's been, it's hard to manage. And this year, my New Year's resolution is to get over it. And so I have spent 16 hours with a, uh, a hypnotist uh, trying to get through it. And I'm making a lot of progress. Like if I've flown to California, I've flew to New Orleans, I've flew to Dublin over the last month. No booze in the flight. So I think one of my many kryptonites, I, I think I'm going to get over it this year. I'm making some serious progress. I'm feeling really, really, really much better about my flying. But, but is it because you're scared of flying or is it because you know too little about what's happening in the plane or because statistics would have no, helped you out? Not, 
I'm not, I'm not scared of flying. I'm scared of being stuck in that tube with a lot of other people for six hours. Claustrophobic. Kind of like claustrophobia, yeah. It, it's a completely illogical fear. It makes no sense. But uh, I have, I've had it ever since I was a little kid. And I fly, but man, it, it, every time I fly, it takes a month off my life. Um, but this this year, I'm making, uh, making some nice progress on it. Wow. I, I wouldn't imagine the room when you decided to go global. Yeah. Um, when we decided to go global, my, my teammates know. I said, that's fine. We can go global. But just know I'm not flying to the Sydney office. <laughs> or anywhere for that matter. <laughs> you guys can go visit Sydney. I'll video in. But <laughs> and also, thank God for all those Zoom and other video meetings. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. No, but I hope for your sake that you get over it. And it sounds like uh, ne- this time next year, you're going to be uh, laughing about this. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Okay, so Brian, what can we wish you? What can you wish me? I was expecting that question. You can wish me... Okay, you can wish for me what the Dalai Lama uh, wishes for people. What the Dalai Lama says is you should live a good and honorable life so that when you're old and gray, you can look back on it and enjoy it a second time. Wish me a good uh, and honorable life so I can look back on it when I'm old and gray. Well, so so that's exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, Brian, it sounds like you're on the right track. Brian, thank you, thank you so much. Um, uh, this was great. I'm I'm gonna kind of just summarize the key points, and you tell me if I'm missing anything. So, first of all, um, I think optimism is something that that uh, you, you've said a few times in different variations. So, being optimistic is important. Uh, rethinking something from scratch, um, which you branded that. What do you call it? dimensional? Uh, I don't like conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom. Okay, so non-conventional wisdom. Um, learn and unpack uh, uh, information as much as possible. Um, a, a line that I really liked, feedback is breakfast for champions. Some people are scared of feedback, so that's great. Uh, and never be satisfied. Um, as a management, uh, you try to be as total transparent as you can and uh, make mistakes once but not twice. Those sound great. So uh, you said them, not me. So... Uh, <laughs> Brian, uh, continue being successful, and we thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate this. No problem. Uh, pleasure talking with you. Have a great day, guys. Will do. Bye for now. Bye. Real life superpowers. Superpowers.